Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Not as exciting as it was seven weeks ago. We can try that again. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Today's the seventh Sunday of Easter. We don't put we don't give up on the resurrection of Jesus just because the Easter Bunny's already come through. It's the conclusion to a very exciting season of the church year, focused on the most exciting news in human history. Christ is risen, and this past Thursday marked 40 days after Easter Sunday, and it was called the Feast of the Ascension. Now, I always feel a little bit guilty that I'm never quite getting around to planning a service for Ascension Day. And we haven't had one yet, as far as I know. I guess you could say that I suffer from ascension deficit disorder. <laughs> Maybe next year. In our gospel text for this morning, we hear an excerpt uh, from what historically has been called Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's a prayer that goes on for three chapters in the night Jesus was betrayed, or an entire chapter as part of a larger dialogue on the night he was betrayed. He prays at great length for his disciples, for those both following him there and those who would follow him later on account of their words, the word of their testimony. He prays that we would all be one, and that by being one in him, the world would come to know him. It's a very powerful prayer. It's something that is hard for Christians to ignore, especially in a world that has become so divided. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that them, they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. And as we continue our series on Revelation, it's our second reading each week, we've seen glimpses of the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. And what we see this morning in John's vision of the new creation is in fact precisely what Jesus desires. His prayer is answered. That the ones that the Father has given him would be with Jesus where he is, and that we would see his glory. And here John has granted a tiny glimpse of how everything will turn out in the end. The conclusion of the vision and a picture of the life of the world to come. This new Jerusalem will be absolutely spectacular. We heard about it last week, and John continues to elaborate about a very important thing at the center of this heavenly city. The river of the water of life is flowing right from the throne, shining as bright as crystal. David foretold of this river of life, too. Psalm 46 describes a river flowing through the city of God. And also the prophet Ezekiel describes it at length in his chapter 47. And he also records the tree of life that is stretching across, across both banks of the riverside. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. And this is also what John sees. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So yes, Jesus' desire to have his people with him, that's exactly what will happen in the new creation. In fact, that was God's plan in the very beginning. The Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the garden daily until they started hiding from him in their shame. When Adam sinned, he tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, and that just wouldn't cut it. Genesis 3.21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is far more significant than we might expect at first. This itself was the first sacrifice to cover sin. And it demonstrates truly that only sacrifices made by God can cover sin. Nothing that we can do will do it. It takes a death to cover sin, as we heard last week also. That's something only God can do. But it's not like human beings haven't tried to do it their way, right? What does Adam say when he's confronted by God? <laughs> well, the woman you gave me, right? See, God, it's her fault. Take her instead. By the way, God, if you really want to get technical about it, it's your fault because you gave her to me. Religion is man's attempt to pass the blame. What does the woman say? She blames too. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. By the way, God, who made that serpent? Cain later attempts to use plants as a sacrifice to God, as a sacrifice to cover up his sin, but sin is more serious than that. And God rejects his sacrifice while accepting his brother's sacrifice of the firstborn sheep. Hmm. Plants don't cover sin, neither fig leaves nor plant sacrifices, but the death of the firstborn lamb is what is acceptable. Really, it makes you kind of wonder what kind of skins God used to clothe Adam and Eve. I guess, probably a lamb. Abel's offering denotes his faith because he knows the seriousness of sin. He knows that his family has ushered death and corruption into the world. He knows that by faith in God's promise that the blood of the firstborn lamb will undo all of this decay. And now the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has done so by the power of his blood. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. We, too, have been delivered from death, hell, everlasting condemnation by the Father of all mercy and grace on account of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve had been banished from the garden in order that they might no longer have access to the tree of life. As detestable as death truly is, and it is, God has overcome death by the death of Jesus and has worked even death together for his purposes. Had Adam and Eve remained in the garden and continued to eat of the tree of life, they would have remained in this state of sin and corruption forever. But God, in his mercy, overcomes even death in utilizing it as a means by which we may be set free from our slavery to sin. And now that Jesus Christ has conquered sin, 
we also shall once again have full access to the tree of life and the river of life, which flows directly from the throne of God. By the way, this would be a four-hour-long sermon if we unpack every single image present in Revelation 22. We're not going to do that. The fruit of that tree, though, is for the life of the world, and the leaves are for its healing. Jesus says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by its gates. It's amazing how much of both Genesis and Revelation have to do with food and clothing. Eat this, don't eat that. Wear this, don't wear that. And here, Jesus declares to John that there is a new garment to wear. Not a birthday suit, not fig leaf speedos, not pelts, but a robe of righteousness, washed in the blood of the Lamb to a pure, dazzling white perfection. That's how you have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. One day that will be revealed, but for now this garment is seen only with the eyes of faith. The response of the church in the power of the Holy Spirit to all this is come. What else could we possibly say? The Spirit of the bride say come. Let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We are in constant expectation and hope for our Lord's return. And the prayer of the church ever since Jesus' ascension has always been, Come, Lord Jesus. Many of us say it at every single meal, right? This word carries a twofold sense for the spirit and the bride to hear these words. We long for Jesus to return, and so we urge him to come again. But we also stand bearing witness to the rest of the world to come to the Lamb. The Spirit also moves Christ's bride to invite others to now come and drink. <clears throat> For their time granted by God to do so is so short. Our mission should be shaped by this sense of urgency, that the days are short and Christ is coming soon. We who have heard his words continually bear witness to this most wonderful news that Christ is risen from the dead and is trampling down death by death, giving life to those in the tombs. It's not just an Easter Sunday thing. It's a Christian thing. <clears throat> it's an every single Sunday, every Lord's Day, the first day of the week we gather to celebrate Christ's resurrection victory. A victory that even now is transforming the world, even if we can't see it. There's a new reality that lies behind everything that Jesus is doing through his word and sacraments. He's bringing new life and restoring the world. The message of this book, Revelation, the words of the prophecy here are granted to his servants, that's you and me, to show the things that must soon take place. It's not the doom and gloom things that we're so concerned about. The words of the prophecy of this book indicate that the final outcome of human history has been revealed. And that Jesus Christ has triumphed over everything to make all things new. 
This greater and second Adam has undone Adam's curse, putting to death the death of Adam by his own death and conquering over sin and the forces of hell. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. <coughs> Rise for prayer as you're given.